So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Now, I don't know where you're listening right now, but it's probably not as cool a scenario as depicted by James, uh, who's written in to say, Ollie, I discovered The Modern Man via listening to Answer Me This and love both your shows. Wahaha. My plan is working. Uh, I was on the 2016 Australian men's roller derby team. Now, you were not expecting to hear that, were you? Uh, And I played the modern man in the car from Canberra to Melbourne and back. It kept me amused and entertained. I just tried out for the 2018 World Cup team, and if I make it, I hope to listen to you on the seven-hour drive again. Uh, James, that is lovely, but it does mean you're going to have to save up whole episodes just for that drive. And I don't know if that'll put too much weight of expectation on the entertainment value of the podcast. Uh, But then again, I suppose you will have the excitement of the World Cup roller derby in the back of your brain to keep you going. I mean, I I know that Australian guys take their sport seriously, uh, you know, like it's news or something. But uh, seriously, Roller Derby. Wow. Hello as well to Lizzie Yarnold, gold-winning British skeleton racer. We know you're a man fan as well, Lizzie. Great to have you on board. I love that uh, our listeners seem to have almost as diverse a range of occupations as our interviewees. (laughs) This week's guest is a man called... FC. Uh, He is a computer hacker, a so-called white hat hacker, and basically he's paid to break into computer systems to improve their safety. As it turns out, that is a perfect job for him because he's the kind of guy that would probably be breaking into computer systems anyway. It's a really interesting interview, and don't worry, it's not too big on the IT geekery stuff. It's more about his personal journey uh, from a childhood of poverty into making this criminal activity a legitimate pursuit and the security mistakes that big companies like banks make all the time. Uh, Also this week, you're going to learn what war dialing is uh, and how you could have done it in the 90s with a free toy from a box of cereal. Uh, You will learn how it feels to be charged with manslaughter, even when you haven't killed anyone, and you'll learn how to get a ticket for the big small penis party. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. He actually said to me, you know, if I carry on doing this, I know I'm going to jail. But I love doing it. Data theft, bank robbery and extortion. The hacker who turned his passion into a profession. Your dick doesn't dictate your sexual skill. And Alex Fox has some sex advice for those less developed down below. 
But first, with all the trends you need to know about in this week's Zeitgeist, it's the man who formerly worked for British Airways and told me once, quote, the cabin crew were filthy as fuck. It's Ollie Peart. Not sure that's true. That is accurate. I mean, it's what you said. Not on the record. No, it is. Uh, What are this week's big trends? Peak CGI. Oh, I'm excited about this because... Well, look, don't get me wrong. I'm looking forward to Toy Story 4. But I'm sort of over CGI as well. Not Toy Story, but there's a film called uh, Justice League. The film's been going through weeks and weeks of reshoots, right? Because the original director, Zack Snyder, he's Mm -hmm. bowed out. And they've had to call back the big stars, Ezra Miller and Henry Cavill. But Henry Cavill is in two films at the moment. Mission Impossible, the sixth instalment. Who knew? And in that film, he's got a (laughs) moustache. Okay. And he is... I thought uh, you were going to say a tattoo or something. (laughs) And Paramount, who are making Mission Impossible, have contractually blocked him from shaving it off. So he's back in filming Superman, or filming as part of Superman in this Justice film, and he's got a tash. So... What they got to do? They've got to digitally remove it, frame by frame. Ollie, we have reached peak CGI. I see where you're coming from, but to me that's not a trend being over. That's quite an elegant solution, isn't it? I mean, it's an absurd waste of money, but both of these big film studios have that kind of money. I mean, what's the alternative? I guess he shaves off the moustache. Yes. And then in Mission Impossible 6 wears a fake moustache. Yes, what is wrong with that? Well, th- what's wrong with that is that he signed a contract with Paramount specifically to say he won't do that because they want the quality of a real moustache on screen. It's not their fault that the other film company have messed around. Have you seen fake facial hair? The makeup. Are you going to tell people... me that beard's not real that you're wearing now? Because <laughs> that would genuinely shock me. If you think of the, the, the makeup that they can do these days, the face makeup, you look at X-Men, the X-Men franchise, the stuff that they wear in yeah, that. It's not Paramount's problem, is it? They're not the only ridiculous ones. There are more examples. Have you heard of a film called John Wick? It's got Keanu Reeves in it. There is a bit of CGI in there, but they haven't overdone it. Apart from, there's a puppy in it, and it has a poo. Right. And they CGI the poo. And it costs $5,000 to render the poo. I mean, it takes a long time to get a puppy to perform on command. No. But the real yes, it does. Like, Every the, second the, that you're filming, that movie will cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Right. So $5,000 to know you're going to get the poo in shot is money well spent, isn't it? Rather than waiting perhaps an hour for a dog to do a shit. You've never had a puppy. They shit all the time. They shit all the time. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the shitting puppy. It's the type of shit a puppy shits. Right. So they wanted like a curly walnut whip type thing. Yeah. Just buy one from a joke shop. Go on, give me one other suggestion. As to why we've reached peak CGI. Pubes in Fifty Shades of Grey. This is getting ridiculous now. Yes, it is ridiculous. It's an important part of that film that the stars look sexy. Yeah. You'd expect CGI to be part of that process, wouldn't you? The point is they were covered up, right? So they wear like a prosthetic over their bits so that they're not flashing I their see. bits in yes. whilst they're filming. A modesty pouch. Why not have one of those but it's still got pubes on? Because it wouldn't then have a dong or a vagina. It would just have pubes. But they, you it only see the... pants with like... pubes on it. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Because it wouldn't look convincing. It would look more convincing to digitally put it in afterwards with just a suggestion of what's going on. I should go to Hollywood and I could save many, many studios, lots and lots of money. What are your other trends for this week? The death of Mandels. This is a personal observation, Mm -hmm. which is rare, I suppose. But sandals are cool again. Are they? They are, yes. But you're wearing Espradilleth. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I am. I'm also wearing pop socks, which are my other halves. Oh, wow, well, look at that. Off. Okay, it looked like he wasn't wearing socks at all, listeners, and then oh, when he no. popped his Espradilleth off, there, there, has there was come, a sock. It's come off. But I did that because otherwise my feet get Your really... Feet stink, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they stink. And this is my point. Go on. You wear sandals, yes, you don't your feet have do. this problem. No, they do. 
I've had to move away from people in open plan offices because their feet stink because they're wearing sandals. Well, they probably stink because they were wearing trainers the day before. Maybe. So I found an article on Dig and it's got all these beautiful new sandals for 2017 for the summer. Mm -hmm. They are so much more attractive and beautiful to look at than previous examples of sandals. You've got a sort of vaguely sort of surfery, snowboardy background. Do you go for... I mean, Reef was the traditional shoe of choice, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I still wear flip-flops a lot. I mean, they're a bit different from sandals, aren't they? I am talking about sandals specifically. Okay, I don't want to get into technicalities. The Reef one had a strap around the back of the heel, so it wasn't a flip-flop, oh, it was a sandal. Okay. And I okay. was a big fan, and now they're deeply unfashionable. If you wear sandals more often, your feet will look and be nice, because they won't be wrapped up. Yeah, because in... they've been exposed to the elements more. Yeah. Okay, so what brand does Ollie Pitt wear now? Well, I wear Tevers. Ah, now actually I do know about those. They're an Israeli sort of outdoor brand, aren't they? And you can fold them in half and they'll spring back into shape. Yeah, so I've got like some water ones which are like designed for water sports. You know, like barefoot shoes? Mm -hmm. So they're like that on the bottom Mm -hmm. and then on the top they've got these like waterproof strap things. But they are like three times the price of everyone else apart from Birkenstocks, aren't they? They are quite expensive. Yeah, Yeah, they're about 80 quid. quid, 70 quid, Yeah. yeah. But they're really comfortable and lovely and we should wear them more often. Men. Get your feet out. <laughs> and finally, it's that moment, Ollie Pitt, where we uh, progress your challenge to become a true trends insider. Two weeks to go. Let's see how you've done. Have you become Twitter verified? No. Did they refuse you again? No, I haven't heard anything. Okay. So I think it's good news. Okay. Have you held a Nando's black card? Yes. yes. Have you become a Freemason? No. But you have now met the Freemason. I met a Freemason. How I did said it go? I was going to. It was amazing. We met in the Freemason's arms. A chap called Sam. He was very lovely. He told me an awful lot about the Freemasons, most of which I've forgotten. Were Where you we... drinking whilst you were researching? Yeah, yeah, oh, I, drank, I drank quite a lot. In fact, that I mean, night... listeners, this usual level of banter is what he does when he spent all day thinking about it. But where we were, this is what was really interesting. So the Freemasons Arms is to do with the Freemasons. Yeah. And it's next to a massive building in central London, which is, I think it's called like the Freemasons Hall. Is that and their it... headquarters or whatever? Yeah. Okay. And it's a really intimidating, massive, huge building. And it does look, it's got like a gold star on the top. And I said to him, I go... What's that gold star? Yeah. And he said, I don't know. That's I don't think... great information, no, I, But I think it is, I think that's You think like... it's Illuminati level stuff that he yeah, couldn't tell you? He couldn't tell me that. He did tell me loads of other stuff. <laughs> right, what? So. Trying to remember one thing. <laughs> they do accept that there was some corruption involved with the police many years ago in okay. the Freemasons. Because the, the whole point was, you know, you kind of help your friends and help each other whilst helping society. Yes. So it's for charity, but you also work with other people in the room, not anyone else. So. Exactly. Okay, so and that I included asked, the police. Yeah, and I asked him up front, I said, if you were in the situation where you're, I don't know, pitching for some work and you know that someone you're pitching to is a Freemason and they know you're one, mm. would you get that work? And he categorically said, no, that would not happen. It's not like that. It's not helping each other in that way. It's helping each other in like, I don't know, a Do you know philanthropic what, way. That is what people who've been to Oxbridge say. And I went to Oxford, and it's not a deliberate old boys network. It's that when you then think, oh, who's this really talented person who does this thing? Mm. You know people. You know people who work at the BBC and the civil service and whatever. It's the same thing, isn't it? It's not that you necessarily have a preference. It's that when you think, oh, who's a really good plumber? Oh, yeah, that bloke I met at the Freemason's Arms. That's what you're going to think, isn't it? Possibly. Well, he was very keen to say that they like giving other people sort of opportunities and chances to join. So it's like, it's not an exclusive boys club, necessarily. I mean, it is. Women can't join. But... (laughs) You can't. And it's almost the very definition of an exclusive voice. <laughs> but but <club>. you <laughs> did. You ask about the handshake, and what was his response? Uh, no. What? Well, I was asking him about joining mostly because I the challenge was that I needed to join, right? Yeah. 
he went through. But, but if you know they, the handshake, then you don't need to join. Well, no, because he you was can just basic, get twenty percent off your drink. Basically, he did say there is a handshake. Yeah. In, but he said, I said, could I go into that Freemasons hall? Mm. And he said, well, no. What you have to do is there is like a handshake, but I could show you it. But there's actually like several other things that you need to be able to do afterwards. So you do it in an order. There's like a process. So you might, I'm, he might have been able to show me the handshake, like the, that single bit. But the things that happened before it, which he didn't tell me about, all happen in a specific order. So it might be words you say, mm. or it might be the way that you address someone. Oh, so they'd know. They'd a Freemason know, would know yeah. you're not a proper Freemason. And you might listen to him and go, well, you're talking weird, mate. You yeah. know, And he wouldn't go into the detail in that. I mean, is he someone who listens to the podcast? Yeah, he does. Okay. Hi, Sam. <laughs> hey, lovely Sam. Yeah. Thanks for excellent taste in podcasts. Is he keen on having you sign up as a Freemason now you've met him? Yeah, I think he he said that he would support me in my process, where in like in the process to join if I wanted to. But the trouble is, it can take like a year. Do you have any inclination to become a Freemason? It does sound quite interesting. Okay, let's leave that hanging there as a temptation for a future episode. <laughs> have you tried the latest cult skincare treatment or product? No, but I would update you next week on that. Have you sat at a chef's table? We're we will do on Monday next week. Looking forward to it. Indian food, yummy. Have you joined an elite dating app? Yes. Yes. Have you acquired AAA access to a festival? Yes. Yeah, thanks, John McClure. Have you, I don't even want to ask the words, got tickets to the London transfer of Hamilton? I'll update you next week. Have you taken a parliamentary ghost train? Yes. Oh, thank God. I'm so glad because this is nerdy producer Matt's thing. Basically. Well, where was it from and to? Did you go to High Wycombe? It was from, no, I didn't go to High Wycombe. I wanted to go somewhere interesting where I could have a bit of a day. Right, okay. So I went from Exeter, St. David's to Oakhampton. Okay, and re- remind the audience what a parliamentary ghost train is. A parliamentary ghost train is a train that operates because you have to pass a law to stop it operating. It runs once a week. Yeah. So this train runs on Sundays, four times a day on the Sunday. Okay. But the reason I went on that specific train mm-hmm. is that a chap called Jeff Marshall told me to go on that train, right? And he is uh, a chap who is currently, right now, travelling around every single train station with his wife in the entire country. Mm-hmm. He's got a Twitter called at all the stations, and it's quite interesting. Book the ticket based mm-hmm. on Jeff's recommendation. And mm-hmm. then on Twitter, somebody else got in touch and said, I don't think it is a parliamentary train. Oh, no. And I'm like, I don't well, want this to go minute. on anymore. I'm thinking, right, well, I'm going to go on the train. I'm going to investigate on behalf of this podcast. Right. Plus, I spent £5.10 on the ticket. I'm going to let that go to waste. <laughs> yeah. So I went down to Exeter St. David's. My other half dropped me off. It's very kind of her. It's a nice place. Got on the train, and it was just a two-carriage little poxy thing. And I definitely saw some train nerds. So, so that like, sounds kosher, then. That sounds like a parliamentary ghost train. Totally. Anyway, there's a chap walking up and down wearing a tabard, and he's doing like a survey. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, he must know something. And he comes up to me and he said, um, I'm just doing a survey for the train because we want it to run a few more times a week. We uh-huh. want to run it all week, basically. I was like, oh, great. He goes, what are you doing on this train? <laughs> and I said, well, funny you should ask. I'm here for a podcast. And uh, I got told this is a parliamentary train. So uh, this chap called Jeff Marshall yeah. uh, told me about it. And he said, come on this train. He goes, oh, Jeff Marshall. Yeah, I know him. He was here the other week. <laughs> and then he said, uh, the thing is, I can categorically say that right. this is not a parliamentary train. Because? It runs only in the summer, and a parliamentary train has to run all year. Ugh. He said to me, it's still a very unusual train, hence all the bloody nerds. Yes. But not a parliamentary train. Okay. So I'm sat in bloody Stamford Courtney <laughs> on my way to Oakhampton, and I haven't completed the 
task. Well, I'm glad that you acknowledge that you haven't completed the task. Mm. However, I'm inclined not to force you to do the task again. Producer Matt is shaking his head and thinks you do have to do the task again. I'm not going to Wickham. I mean, this is all Matt's fault. Don't blame me. I didn't even know what a parliamentary ghost train was when he put it on the list. Because they only run once a week. So if I'm not around in that place on that day of the week, it's really hard to get the bloody train. I don't envy you and I appreciate the effort. (sighs) Oakhampton's nice. Is it? Well, there you are. It wasn't a complete wasted day, was it? You met a man in a tabard? Yeah. Yeah? And you got... Was the, was he interested in, in podcasting? Did you know what that was? No. No. Did you explain? No. No. Brilliant. Well, great. Missed an opportunity there as well. Pleasure to see you, Ollie. You too. Bye. Bye. Now, did your school have computer room kids? If you're the same age as me, then it probably did. Uh, There would have been a group of socially awkward early adolescents who would spend every break time, every lunch time, the hours after school, playing with code on school PCs and doing seemingly incomprehensible things like using the internet. Uh, Well, many of those kids, needless to say, probably went on to have the last laugh. Um, I suspect many work now as software engineers, web designers, IT support, but probably not that many nerds from school computer rooms go on to rob banks professionally. My guest today, FC, that's not his real name, we'll deal with that later, Uh, he did. He is what is known as a white hat hacker. I met him in a cafe in London, so forgive the background noise, and I started by asking him about his childhood. My parents and I grew up uh, very poor, like incredibly poor. Most of the time I was just fending for myself, really, going out literally foraging for food, having to go out, kill rabbits for dinner. Um, Wow, at what age? Must have been about nine, ten, something like that, you know, sort of I was going out to get food for the family, you know, sort of going out into the fields, gathering mushrooms, gathering sort of, you know, bits and pieces it real hunter-gatherer stuff because we had no money to, to you know get any food i remember the first time i ever saw a pot noodle someone i knew had tried a chicken and mushroom pot noodle the first time ever and hated it so they threw it away so i ended up eating the throwaway pot noodle that's how hungry i used to be when i was a kid so when i say we grew up poor i mean really poor and did you get help from the government uh no there, there was nothing like that. My mum and dad split up quite young, or when I was quite young anyway. Um, there were lots of abuse issues. I was physically beaten quite a lot as a kid. So yeah, it's it scarred me a little bit, but it's made me the man I am today. Okay, you're in this very tough childhood. At the mm-hmm. time, did you see it that way though? No, I, I enjoyed it. I, you know, I, you know, my my best friends was literally a uh, an ant hill in our garden, you know, and I had a. A giant thistle that grew in the garden that was like, you know, kind of my pet that I sort of, you know, looked after and, until it got taller than I did. Sort of running around the fields and, you know, we didn't have any friends. We lived in a, in, in a place that literally was between two villages, so it didn't even have a name where we lived. With that background, I'm guessing then, you never had a computer of your own? No, not for, not for many, many years, actually. So let's fast forward a few years then. Let's okay. talk maybe sort of GCSE age. Okay. What are you up to then? These now proper PCs were coming in. Uh, we had an IT department. It was then that they were starting to get networked together. That's when we started seeing uh, the ability to get into other PCs. When, when other students were doing work, I could get into their PCs and 
mess around with stuff and bring stuff up on their screen. Do you um, remember a particular moment where you discovered that? <laughs> um, I don't remember discovering it, but I remember annoying several uh, classmates that were you know, very much the bullies of the school, not really understanding how computer technology worked. Um, and there was me being able to like, you know, delete all of their work that they spent an hour writing, um, and they had no way of getting it back. Yeah, it was, it was quite good. It was like a, a masked way of getting back at the bully, which was quite nice. Back then, everything was done by modem. So it was like a, a, <laughs> a squawking box that you plugged into your telephone line, and you could either use your telephone or the modem at once. You couldn't, you couldn't do both. Yeah. What we used to do was called war dialing. So you would just put in a, a telephone number, see if a computer picked up. If it didn't, move on to the next telephone number, move on to the next one, and just go through it, just basically brute forcing telephone numbers until you found a computer. Hmm. And then you'd write, note that down uh, to look at later, and you just carry on going through until you found a bunch of numbers that, that were connected to a computer modem the other end. And then other people would try them, or you would get theirs and try theirs, and you'd inevitably get you know, sort of some... American defense firm or something like that would be like, oh, this is our this is our computer network. Um, don't log in, or you know, you'll we'll, we'll come and get you. You know, there, there was nothing really sort of stopping you from trying that. If you try that now, you'd get arrested. Mm. But back then, it was it was all about finding what was out out there. Okay, uh, so these were number. When you say you brute brute force numbering, yeah, did you use just your local code in Essex, or were you going all <laughs> around the world? You'd always do it abroad because it, it, it's easier. Um, so there was a uh, a phenomenon back then called freaking, which is uh, manipulating the phone systems back then to do things that gave you free telephone calls. So a a guy in the states called John Draper, who's uh, eloquently known as Captain Crunch. Um, basically found a uh, there was a cereal box called Captain Crunch over in the States and they gave away a free whistle in one of their toys he found that if you blew this whistle it, it produced a, a tone at about I think it was like 33 hertz or something I, I, can't, I can't remember the exact um, spec of it but this particular tone was the same tone that uh, the telephones would play if no. you put in like a dime so he could trick the telephone into <laughs> thinking that he'd paid money by blowing this whistle. So he would get free phone calls like that. And that he actually met a young black kid who was blind, who had perfect pitch and whistling. So he could literally just whistle telephone numbers or, or different tones for like different coins down the telephone line. It's amazing. They made electronical uh, versions of these called like beige boxes and blue boxes. There's all sorts of different variations that did slightly different things. Um, so the biggest one was a blue box, and that basically meant you could take it to any payphone and press the press a certain button, and it would give you a free phone call. Obviously, in the UK, we use different tones. That there's basically multiple, t- so it's two tones played over each other to produce a different tone mm-hmm. um, so in the UK it's all about decoding that and finding out what those tones were and then you could basically use these blue boxes over in the UK as well to like create free phone calls so you would use systems like that uh, which were technically illegal because you're defrauding the, the, the telephone companies to make free phone calls to do your brute forcing so that you weren't spending hundreds of pounds in, in a phone box yeah. you're just like you know just using their their system against themselves I mean that's really clever <laughs> it seems to me like it would 
be a waste of hours and hours and hours of time. Oh, you'd think that, but uh, how many hobbies have you got that you waste hours and hours and hours of time on? Yeah. How many people will sit and watch telly for hours and hours and never actually learn anything? Mm. So, one example of something that was really interesting. Libraries and universities, they, they were the big ones because then you could get access to, to information that they possibly didn't want to release or wasn't known about at the time. Like what? Just lots of research papers. It got me really interested in physics, actually, um, <laughs> weirdly. And, and a lot of ethical hackers have a physics background. So when I went on to uh, you know, college and stuff like that, um, I actually went off and studied science because um, I was really interested in how things work. Mm. And that's, that's something you'll find with a lot of ethical hackers is how does something work and can I take it apart and see if it works inside and how, how the next bit, how the next layer down works. And physics is the epitome of that. I was already quite bored of school, quite bored of college. So I thought, oh, I need to go to university. But one, we couldn't afford to, to go to, or I couldn't afford to go to university. Um, and B, I was still at college and not at university age. But I knew what they were teaching at university was much more interesting. Mm. So I used to go to university. So I used to go to the local campus and go to their lectures. Now, almost every lecturer back there wouldn't care if you were signed up to their class or not. Mm. You could just sit in the back and listen. Yeah, they just assume you were a student from and they university. Because who the hell breaks into a university lecture yeah. and listens? You know, they, they have hard enough time getting their students to do it, <laughs> let alone a stranger. So I got basically a, a university education without ever going to university. Okay, so what were you up to on the side at the same time? So I was working as a system administrator uh, which is the guy that basically looks after all the computers on a network. So kind of like a, a shepherd to sheep. And how old are you at this point? Um, so I'm probably 16, 17, something like that. And because you're the sysadmin, you have to do a lot of security as well because you don't want people breaking into your computers. And presumably these aren't computer companies. You're the these IT aren't guy, right? No, yeah, yeah, exactly. These, so these, are, these are companies that just sell stuff and they have no idea of technology, but they know they need some sort of web presence that's now a thing. Yeah. And whilst looking after the computer systems to make sure everything's running properly, you're also making sure it's secured. So I go through a couple of these companies and uh, I'm doing a lot more security than I am looking after stuff because basically... Once everything's running, keeping it going is relatively easy. So you're left with a lot of time on your hands. And I get to one company and the guy is a bit of an... He has some mental health issues, let's put it that way. He basically calls the police on me to say that I wiped some computer systems that I didn't. Um, there's a couple of other bits and pieces to it. But effectively, the police come along and they arrest me just based on his word that I did something wrong back and forth quite a lot because they didn't understand anything about computers back then when they charged me that was a very bizarre experience they didn't have like computers in their system yeah, the, the, the closest they had was manslaughter so they actually booked me under manslaughter with, with, with a note uh, which myself no one died <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so myself and my lawyer were like mm, that's a bit iffy but okay whatever so yeah, it was a very traumatic time for me back then. Well, talk uh, me through that trauma. Did you think, this is it, I'm never going to be allowed access to computers again? I mean, that's something that you've obviously spent no, 10 years cultivating. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't so much about the computers, it was about, am I going to go to prison? Because, you know, looking at 10 years uh, prison sentence, you know, it's like, there's no way I can pay the fine. 
there's you know I'm, I'm gonna go away and I've got no money for a lawyer it's looking pretty grim so I had no job I was 20 miles away from this police station that I had to deal with because that's the county the, the crime took place in so I was driving a car back and forth with no money trying to get a lawyer which I had no money to pay for uh, I had no family to like really fall back on and ask them for money so I was I was in a very tough place and I was approached by some people and said hey if if you want do you want to come and work for us um, who, if, it, who found you? <laughs> these guys found me um, and said you know if the case went away then you should come and work for us and I was like I, I yeah, appreciate you're cool. deliberately obfuscating who they were yeah. but what kind of people were they? when you say these guys uh, I mean they were people that worked at a place <laughs> um, let's, let's put it this way um, some strangers online no, 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 no. Uh, some strangers in suits approached me. Okay. Um, I see. Now we see the kind of people you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they basically said, if this case went away, would you come and work for us? And I was like, mm, don't particularly want to work for you, but if you can make this go away, then brilliant. But that's never going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. That's like, it's like Hollywood movie style, right? Um, so I forget about it. Uh, and then like a week or so later, case is dropped. Everything, all charges are dropped. I'm free to walk out. Wow. And so I go and work for these guys for a while. <laughs> How long were you working for the men in the suits um, for? A good couple of years. good couple of years. And I've been in touch with them on and off throughout my entire career because it's very handy to have those sorts of people. Yes. Um, so your job then was assisting them in doing things they couldn't do computer-wise. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, consultation, shall we say. Um, so it's, it's taking a a knowledge base that they don't have 10 years experience in and going okay let's think about it slightly differently because the trouble with a lot of people is they don't have the mindset of an attacker and this is something that we we try and teach now um, as part of our training at the firm that I run um, is how to think like an attacker my my mind is so broken that I can't not see how to attack things all the time and that's probably a little bit hard to understand, but it's basically, if I was a, a, a criminal attacker, what would be the best way to get at you and your data and your passwords to get into your system? Mm-hmm. So most people would go, okay, if you ran a bank, for example, uh, the best way to get into your safe, how would you say the best way to get into someone's safe is? I guess diverting the attention and already knowing the code somehow yeah, or okay. I guess an armed robbery right so yeah armed robbery maybe but that's that's quite it's a serious penalty for that yeah. yes yeah um, so what you do is you could do it digitally you could rob a bank digitally I've, I've, I've done that ethically obviously for the companies that, that needed it but the simplest way to get any information out of someone is to attack their family so if I came to your house and took a claw hammer to your children or, or you know, pretended to or threatened to, you would basically give up everything you had. Mm-hmm. And it takes absolutely no computing power whatsoever. There's no guns involved. So you, you've immediately dropped down the list of how much you're going to get done for it. So it, it's taken a piece of wood or you know, a fork or a knife out of the kitchen to completely compromise all of the security that you could possibly have in your entire mm-hmm. entire company so it's it's thinking so differently that people don't know how to defend that 
Well, how do you defend that? You can't. As sim- simple as that. If there is a determined attacker against you, they will get in. And you just have to be okay with that. Yeah, there, there are certain steps you can do to sort of help you become less of a target. Well, okay. So, and presumably that's what you help the men in the suits with. Exactly. Right? So what were yeah. those steps? You know, what could, if you're listening to this and you run a business, what can you do? Okay, so what you need to do is stop worrying about what we call nation-state attacks, right? This the, the Chinese and the Russian coming after your company and doing really sophisticated attacks that cost millions of pounds against you, right? That's not how you are probably going to get compromised. You are going to get compromised by some script giddy that doesn't know what they're doing, just running a bunch of tools because you have failed to look at the very basics of your security. Are you segregating your network, for example? Almost nobody does that. It's effectively in a company, if you've got a finance department and you've got a HR department and you've got a a creative department, they don't necessarily need to talk to each other across the network. So the creative department doesn't need to see the same servers that the HR department need to see. So if someone does get into the creative's systems, they can't access the finance, they can't access the HR because there's physically not a connection there. Well, okay, so some of what you're doing is is now, because you're, you're a white hat hacker, that's yes, what it's correct. called, right? Yeah. So explain what that is. Uh, a hacker that uses all of the same tools, techniques and tradecraft as a, a criminal hacker. But we basically get paid by companies to come in and test their security and help them get better at it. I mean, that's a very uh, elegant and succinct definition. Mm-hmm. It leads me to think, why is that good hacking just because you're being paid by someone to do it? I mean, the intentions of the person who's paying you might be more malicious than someone who's just doing it for fun. Hacking is, not, is, is neither good nor bad. Yeah? Hacking is hacking, whatever you do. It's the moral reason why you're doing it and the ethical reason why, behind it. So I can use exactly the same tools and techniques to break into a website as, say, a hacktivist, which is someone that's doing it for a political gain, right? Or a criminal hacker that is trying to compromise the system to get money. But the reasoning behind why I'm testing it is very different. And have you reached out to young hackers? Have you reached out to people who were like you when the Men in Suits contacted you? I do a lot of outreach um, to kids. It's something I wish that I had had when I was when I was uh, growing up. One big case that really sticks in my mind is I went in to give a a talk at a school, twelve to thirteen year olds, something like that, and they were like, "Oh, you should speak to," I call him Billy. You should speak to Billy. Billy's the hacker in the school. Okay, that's cool. Uh, next session, similar thing. They're like, "Oh, you should speak to Billy." third session and it's clear who Billy is out of this whole room like <laughs> you, you can you just spot the kid like you just... so I was like okay this is gonna be interesting so I got permission from the teacher to have a chat with Billy on my own so we went off into the room and uh, I had a really frank discussion with him I said what have you been doing what are you getting into and to be fair to him, he was really honest with me about what he was getting into. What was he getting into? Um, he was getting into hacking stuff um, for money, like breaking computer game software. He, w- he was just on the cusp of about to get caught, and he knew this. He actually said to me, you know, if I carry on doing this, I know I'm going to jail, but I love doing it. And I was like, right, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to get you on track. And he didn't know that 
white hat hacking existed. He didn't know that this was a job that you can do and just do the same stuff, just get paid very well for it without any sort of you know jail time. So it was it was eye opening to him. We took him to one side and we, we basically laid out a plan of his education that he needed to get to to do the sort of job that I do. Um, so we, we set out what he was going to do at school, where, what he was going to do for college, what university courses he was going to go on to. Um, at the time, I was working for a, a security firm and I managed to convince the boss to let us take him in as a, like an intern mm-hmm. over the summer holidays. So he actually got some real-world experience over the summer summer break, and I know I changed that kid's life. Yeah, and that to me is amazing. It was worth all of the the pain and effort that that getting that talk took to get that one kid and take him from a, a life of crime and turn him into something for good was a massive thing for me. Do you think you might have ended up yes. committing a life of yeah, crime? Yeah, definitely. Um, the the way my mind thinks definitely it's 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 so easy to walk into any building um and get whatever data you wanted part of my my roles over the years has been physically breaking into places so not just the digital side that most hackers do but the 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 physical security testing um so i've broken into probably more banks than any person you're ever likely to meet What's your get-out-of-jail story if someone approaches you and says, what are you so, doing here? So in those sorts of situations, it's mostly banks that want it done. And basically, they would give you a letter that basically authorised you, said, yeah, this is this person, and he is here to do a security test, and if you get caught, produce this letter and show the security guard, and everything's great. That's not quite how it goes down in real life. <laughs> so I would often make up a fake letter that looked very similar, with just a mate's telephone number on the bottom instead of like the managing directors. And then I would take that in. Why? So there's there's a test against policies and procedures. So if you did get stopped, uh, the security guard is to read the letter and it will say on it, contact one of the people below using your internal telephone network system or your phone book system. Don't use the numbers below unless you absolutely need to. Nobody would do that. Everyone would write, read it through and just go, I'll just phone the number because it's easier. So that was the point of the test was if you have some colleague that's on the other side of the phone that just says, it's fine, yeah. let him in. That's not good enough. Then Obviously. Yeah, then it's not good. What, what kind of breaking into the bank did you do? So um, a lot of it would be going in and talking my way in. Mm-hmm. So convincing to, to the, the safe. Oh no! Talk to the managers. Uh, yeah. You know, sort of get in, talk to the people, say, "I need access to your computers behind the the, the counter." I see. So cyber uh, security, but in a physical manifestation. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Because the best way into a computer is being right next to it. Doesn't matter how good it is protected from the outside. If I can walk into your building and plug myself into it, then I've compromised all of your millions of pounds worth of security just by walking in. There was one particular bank. And I was, I was asked to wait around for a bit too long. And it, was, it became very clear to me that the, the area manager had informed the bank that I was coming. The bank, unfortunately, fell out of their policies and procedures and decided to circumvent all of that and just phone the police, uh, which was great fun because uh, about 20 minutes later, armed police surrounded the bank <laughs> and came busting in to, uh, to get me. 
um, which was panicky. At that point, you don't produce the letter <laughs> with your mate's name on, I'm presuming. <laughs> no. So what did you um, do then? So I just basically, I took charge of it and said, look, we need to have a, a really serious discussion here. Uh, let's go and have a, have a chat. And um, I explained what my job was, what I did, why I was doing it, who I was doing it for. And eventually, after about an hour, they believed me and uh, let me go. So... Uh, yeah, that was that was an interesting day. And tell me about your name, because we're calling you FC. Yep. That comes out of Freaky Clown, which I guess is a name you had when you were a hacker when you were younger. Yeah. But why do you still keep it? Why don't you go under your real name? It came from a nickname I had. Uh, I say a nickname. It was some bullies called me Freaky Clown when I was a kid, when I went to a, a, a fancy dress party in a not very good costume, because uh, obviously I didn't have a lot of money. So I could have taken that name and just been really down about it. Or at the time, I was looking for a new handle for, for hacking. So I just used that as a, a handle. That got shortened to FC fairly quickly because Freaky Clown is quite hard to type. <laughs> <laughs> so um, FC got shortened. And basically, everyone started using that name because everyone I was hanging around with was a hacker back then. So I got involved with the London 2600 crew. Everyone was very paranoid back then. Um, and because of the types of work that I've done in the past, it would be really, really handy if people didn't know. Because the types of people that we've prevented um, from doing certain things, they're, they're not the sort of people you'd want knowing where you live. They're the claw hammer people you were talking they're about. They're the claw hammer and worse. So yeah, it's a personal protection thing for me and my family and my loved ones, really. It seems to me that you didn't ever really have any trust for adults until no. you were an adult yourself. I, I still don't. I still don't. Trust is a huge thing for me. And it's only very, very, very recently that I've got on a plane because I don't trust all of the people that made the plane. I don't trust the people that, that fly the plane. It, it, it actually took my girlfriend to get me in a plane because we, we found a, a piloting lesson uh, that a friend of mine brought me for to, to help me get over my fear of flying. And she basically flew me in a plane because she was the only person I would trust enough to do that. But I would say that that lack of trust is what you've managed to make a living out of, isn't it? You, you say to people, yeah. trust no one. Yeah, I, I, that, that's, that's always my advice. At the end of a talk, I'll always say, trust no one, especially those close to you, because because they, they, you can't trust them. You can't, you can't know what everyone else is going to do. You don't know their motivations, what's going on in their life. They could literally do anything, especially if they're inside your company. They can screw over your company so easily and so damagingly that you could probably never get back from it. So I would never trust anyone. FC. You can get more from him on Twitter if you search Freaky Clown. And as he said, he's also the co-founder of a security consultancy. They're called Redacted, and you can find out about them at redactedfirm.com. Right, Alex Fox is up next after this. It's time for the foxhole, which means it's time to talk sex with the mistress of the sexual airwaves, Alex Fox. 
Uh, I mentioned this, Alex, because you've been on uh, Sunday surgery or whatever they call it now. It's not on a Sunday anymore, is it? It's just called the surgery just now. The surgery. BBC Radio One's the surgery. Yes, you've been sir. helping the kids. I have. I've been down with the youth and talking about going down with the youth and the down belows with the youth. And I was quite nervous before I went on because uh, the surgery is a live show and they have young people call up and mm. ask questions there and then. And I was thinking, oh gosh, what if somebody, what if someone gives me, gives me a tinkle about their winkle and it's something I've never heard of? Mm. Um, but thankfully, we talked about polyamory, which uh, we've spoken about on this show before, so I know a lot about. I got a call about foot fetishes and and how common they are and safe ways to indulge them. Um, we had one girl phone up and say that. Um, her libido had dropped because she was worried about exam stress and she'd been with her boyfriend three years and things had kind of dropped off. Um, But it really struck me that it doesn't really matter what age you are, people often have worries that have a lot in common with each other. Mm. Well, something I can reassure you about if you want to buy yourself some condoms or sex toys or lube is that the one-stop shop for your knocking shop is mycondom.com where you can buy a mate's pleasure vibes uh, vibrating cock ring tell us more well it's a bit different to other vibrating cock rings which tend to have just an on off switch and only one setting this one's got three different speeds Mm -hmm. so you can start slow and then build things up to a truly buzzing finale and let's see who's been in touch this week it is a gentleman who has chosen to remain anonymous who says Alex I am one of the relatively small number of men who have a medical condition called hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. Yes, it's a bit of a mouthful, perhaps ironically. For me, puberty didn't really happen, and I've been left with rather undeveloped genitals. Until a few years ago, that wasn't really a problem, but since, I've started taking hormone replacement, and I've now got a normal sex drive, but there's very little I can do about it. This is mainly due to embarrassment. I know a lot of guys have unnecessary size anxiety, but in my case, it is justified. Alex, what can I do? Okie doke. So this is a fella who has a condition which means his genitals are uh, underdeveloped. So they might look like what you'd expect perhaps in a child or someone who hasn't gone through puberty. He's now receiving treatment for that, which means that he has all the urges of an adult person, uh, but his genitals still haven't grown to the degree that you would expect to somebody of his age. So he's got a huge sex drive, but small genitals and is embarrassed about that and worried about approaching a partner with the body that he's in. And just to preempt, I suppose, the obvious answer, probably worried about approaching someone who's really into that. Like, you know, if you you hook up with someone who's looking for someone with undeveloped genitals, you know, you might not want that relationship, really. Uh, If you're inferring that somebody, it would be interested in him because he potentially has a childlike body then yes uh i suppose there could be a a slightly dark undertone to that that that, that could come because it's a bit paedophilic but that wouldn't be my first concern adults come in all different shapes and sizes there are lots of people who are shorter lots of people who have slighter build and as we have discussed before on this show genitals cover a very broad spectrum some are flappy some are frilly some are small some are long some are wide some are narrow i very much expect that actually what he is describing is well within the range of normality for a guy 
But first really? of all, yeah, yeah. I mean, a child's penis isn't well within the range of normal for a guy, is it? Well, he doesn't actually state that he has a micro penis, which no. uh, there are various different definitions of that. But I think, in, I think the, the commonly accepted definition of a micro penis is one under two inches. Mm. So he may fall into that category. But if he's having hormone replacement therapy, he may have actually experienced some growth because he'll essentially be going through puberty now. Hypogonadism is when your sex glands produce little or no sex hormones. It can happen in men or in women. That means that your testicles, if you're a guy, or your ovaries, if you're a woman, don't produce the chemicals needed to elicit the production of secondary sex characteristics. So in a woman, for example, they wouldn't develop breasts. Uh, In a guy, uh, testicular development and penile development would be limited. Uh, They might not grow pubic hair. They can also, it can also um, manifest in bone problems and things like that. Generally, issues with with not going through puberty. Mm -hmm. Uh, They might also sound different, things like that. Um, The reasons why this happens can be can be very varied. It's often a hereditary condition, but it can also be caused by, for example, having a tumour in the brain that presses on the pituitary gland. Uh, It can be caused by a head injury. Uh, There's a variety of things that can spark it. I mean, sorry to make a crude point, but if it could be hereditary, then obviously it hasn't prevented your ancestors from being able to get it on, has it? So, I mean, as he admits himself, this is largely psychological. Well, what he's experiencing now is largely psychological. Yes, having taken hormone therapy. Yeah, having taken testosterone, he'll be noticing things like he might have become a little bit more muscular. Uh, His uh, genitals actually might be growing now because he's getting the the chemicals needed to make that happen. So uh, my first bit of advice to him might be talk to your doctor about the timescale. But if you haven't actually been taking testosterone that long you might find that in years to come, this problem, as you see it, might be solved by the therapy that you're on. But let's presume that the testosterone he's taking isn't going to make his penis bigger. And where do we go from there? Which is going to be something that will affect a lot of listeners who don't have this particular hormonal problem, but do have, just have a smaller a penis. Smaller than penis. Like. Yeah. yeah. Um, have we spoken about my friend Ant Smith before on the I show? I don't believe so. Ant Smith has a smaller than average penis. He is a poet and an activist who talks openly about this. Um, He has written a book called The Small Penis Bible, all about not only ways to use your penis in bed to uh, to satisfy your partner and how to satisfy yourself if you if you're a little your todger's a little bit more on the tiddly side but very importantly he focuses on psychological ways that you can it, it's, it, this is really a mental issue rather mm. than a physical one mm. um, he talks in great depth about ways to make yourself feel more confident mm. he actually put on this big show called the big small penis party where um, you paid for entry according to your penis size so if you had a smaller penis it was actually cheaper to get in and everybody talked about their anxieties their worries uh things that they had actually found really uh, confidence building and constructive in in living more sexually and uh intimately and emotionally satisfying lives except if your penis is just small uh-huh 
then you know what you hear a lot is people saying well when you get an erection you'd be surprised it's probably much more like an average size penis that isn't going to be the case probably for this guy yeah, is it people people do say oh maybe he's a grower not a shower as yeah it, as it goes exactly but in this case if he's if he feels that he actually is unable to satisfy uh someone through penetrative sex what emotionally should he be thinking well lesbians don't have penises at all mm. and yet they seem to do just fine satisfying each other. So if you're a guy with a smaller penis, whether you have a female or a male partner, what you've got down below doesn't dictate how good you are in bed. Your dick doesn't dictate your sexual skill. But, as I say, emotionally, psychologically, the male psyche is is sort of programmed to think that it is. So what should he tell himself? How can he keep that mantra in mind? Okay, well, first up, arm yourself with as much knowledge as you can about how to please your partner in bed Mm. in other ways. Mm. You are bound to feel more confident uh, that you can bring a partner pleasure if you know that uh, you've you've read up or you've... You've uh, You've got some technique. Yeah, you've got some technique that you might be absolutely brilliant at oral sex. You might be fantastic with your fingers. You might be the world's most magnificent massage specialist. Read as much as you can. Listen to podcasts like this. Investigate non-PNV methods of having sex. If you do still want to have penetrative sex and you don't think you're endowed with uh, enough penis to really make that happen, although if you're with a female partner, you should bear in mind that the first one to two inches of the vagina are actually the most sensitive. Mm. Um, So you can still, provided you experience experiment with positions to get uh, to get mm. something that works for you both you might find position pillows and ramps and, and mm. foam uh, foam supports quite useful as well provided you can find a pose that works you still may be able to have really great penetrative sex with what you've got um, but failing that if you still would like to have that kind of experience with your partner you can buy hollow strap-ons that go over the penis you've got and act to expand the girth and the length. I think people often assume that strap-on dildos are just for uh, people with lady parts Mm. or or lesbians or women who have sex with women. Nope, guys can use them as well and there's tons on the market designed for that very thing. So that all sounds very positive if you're in a relationship and you're at a point where you can talk to someone about what your needs are and say, let's try out this foam pillow. Uh What if you're on a date? I mean, what he's basically saying is... I don't want to get back to my place and then reveal my tiny penis. I I kind of feel like maybe I should lay the groundwork first. I don't actually think that our writer here is under any obligation to talk about that before things happen in the bedroom unless that makes him feel more reassured. He might feel more confident uh, if he has that chat before a sexual scenario occurs because then he doesn't have the quite... um, quite nerve-wracking scenario of Mm. thinking oh god i'm about to reveal all uh or or not all as the (laughs) case may be to someone who has who is just not expecting this at all Mm. so it might actually make him feel better to say prior to getting to the bedroom hey i have this condition called hypogonadotropic hypogonadism it means this i have it for this reason and it's being treated this way but hey don't worry because i've got loads of ways i can show you that Mm. how my body feels great Mm. and i'm confident that i i hope i have lots of ways that we can experiment with to make you feel wonderful too and hey i'd love you to show me what works for you and i'll show you what works for me and we'll have a wonderful time exploring each other's bodies and do you fancy a nightcap 
Yeah, speaking of <laughs> nightcaps and, and, and rubber caps, yeah. uh, our writer here, if he is going to date new people and have sexual experiences with them, should make sure that he has condoms that fit him. Mm-hmm. So depending on his penis size, either go for trim ones or maybe thinking about carrying some uh, female condoms. If there aren't condoms on the market that are small enough to fit him, and there are loads out there, there are some companies that will make specialist condoms custom to fit your body. But if you're finding that a bit of a palaver, then female condoms will fit any female partner. So sort yourself out with something that fits. And if you do want to buy yourself a condom of whatever size, you can do no better than mycondom.com. Remember, we give you 15% off if you use the word foxhole at checkout. And if you've got a question of sex for Alex... All you need to do is take your dick and click or your foof and... uh, Move. Move. On to. <laughs> over to our website, which is modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, and click on feedback. We also really love to hear from people who've written to, into us in the past uh, with feedback on my answers. Tell me whether it was useful. Tell me what worked. Tell me what didn't. Tell us your story. In fact, uh, our 50th episode is just around the corner, and we're going to do a foxhole feedback special in that episode. So if Alex has helped you specifically in the bedroom, let us know. Well, that is nearly it for this week's Modern Man, but I do just have time to anoint a new ambassador. It is Dwayne from Arlington, Virginia, who says, Ollie, I cannot tell you how much I love your show. I feel obligated to send you beer money and lots of it. Uh, Dwayne then very kindly sent us 40 quid, so thank you for that. He says, I have turned at least six people in my office onto the wonderful world of the modern man, including two expat Brits, whom I think were surprised that a Yank would know about it before they found it. Uh, Dwayne, you Americans do tend to be rather more vocal about your interests. God bless you for it. Um, Thank you, Dwayne. I now pronounce you Manbassador to Arlington. Our theme is by Django Django. The full track is called Skies Over Cairo. There it goes. Uh, And now a change of pace as we play our record of the week. Let me take some of you back to the summer of 1995 with this. And if it strikes you as a little rage against the machiney, that's because it's the prophets of rage, their supergroup who describe themselves as, quote, an elite task force of revolutionary musicians determined to confront this mountain of political bullshit and confront it head-on with martial stacks blazing. Blimey. This is called Living on the 110, and it's out on their debut album in September. Enjoy. I've been Ollie Mann, our producer Matt Hill. We'll see you next Tuesday.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.